as we get started. If you have your Bibles, open over to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Or, if you have version and you follow along on version, before you get to the event spot where you follow through the different texts and stuff, I need you to open on there to Luke 4, verse 14, on the Bible part of it, not the event part of it. And if you are here this morning and you need a Bible to follow along, uh, just want to let everybody know there's always a whole bunch of Bibles just right outside the door underneath the TV out there. So if you want to follow along with the Bible in hand, there's a bunch out there. But while you're getting to Luke chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5, it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So if you'll do me a favor this morning, I need you to stand with me as we read our text this morning, as I read the text for this morning. And it says this, starting in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, and here do in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You can be seated. So it seems to me that there is just something exciting about a hometown kid come home, right? Like whenever there's a a kid who grew up in a town and they come back home for whatever reason, there's just a lot of excitement. You see, I'm a sports fan, and there's always something exciting about when a, a hometown kid gets drafted to come back and play in front of all the fans at home. 
right? Like I think uh, I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan, and I think of 2011 and hometown kid David Freeze, who grew up in St. Louis, goes to the plate in the 11th inning in game six of the World Series and ends the game with a walk-off home run, and then the next night they win the series. That hometown kid come home. But sometimes it's when a, somebody comes home, there's all these different emotions or, or thoughts. And the best way that I can think of this or put this into picture is if you've ever watched a Hallmark movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you may say, I've never watched the Hallmark. If you've never watched a Hallmark movie, I will explain to you the plot of every Hallmark movie. So the plot of every Hallmark movie begins with this. There's Laura uh, or Mark, and they live in New York City, and they are a lawyer who really hates their job, and what they really want to do is be a writer. They want to write, and they, they have a passion to write, and they don't love what they do, and so they need, a, they need a getaway. They need to go do something, and so they go home to uh, River Creek, and um, also, they could also be a journalist, and they're going back home for a story that they have to write, but they go home, and, and people come up to them, Laura, we missed you so much. What You're home. It's good. To, and, and then some people are like, oh, big shots, come back home. What are you doing here? But then there's always the love interest. The love interest who is like, I've been thinking about you every single day since you left. And then by the end of the movie, all, they rally around to, to save Christmas or, or something, to save whatever. But then there's always that misunderstanding, and they're like, you didn't see what you really saw type of thing or whatever. And then they have to catch a train to go back to New York, and then they get met at the, air, or at the train station because there's only a train station in town. And they get to the train station, and they decide, I don't want to ever leave River Creek. I'm staying here forever. That is the plot of every single Hallmark movie. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> but I say that because... There's all of those mixed emotions and feelings about the person who's come home. What are you doing home? Or we're so glad to have you at home. Well, in Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus back at home. The, the hometown kid raised in Nazareth come home, and we see a, a lot of mixed emotion, a lot of mixed thoughts from being marveled at what Jesus is saying and doing, and they are anticipating what's going to happen. News has spread about things that are going on, and so they're anticipating. They're waiting to see what's going to happen. There's all these different emotions and how quickly things begin to turn. And so we're just going to go ahead and jump right in to our text in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report above him went throughout, went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Luke here is beginning with kind of the summer statement. Jesus has returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Uh, the word here actually in the Greek means full spiritual ability. He's full, full of, of spiritual ability and. 
word is going on around about this man. People are hearing about what he's doing. They're hearing about the miracles that are taking place, about the teaching. Uh, He's going and teaching in the synagogues. Things are happening. People are glorifying him. They're praising him. News is spreading about Jesus of Nazareth. But how quickly things begin to change. And it says in verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So now Jesus returns to his town of Nazareth. News is spread about Jesus, and people were anxious to, to hear him, to see him, to uh, see what was going to happen. And Jesus, in his habit of what he's been in the habit of doing, he goes in to the synagogue, attends synagogue worship. You know, people always say, or I've heard people ask, oh, do I really need to be at church? I mean, I can just, I can worship anytime, anywhere. I don't really need to be in church, do we? Well, I mean, Jesus went to synagogue worship, so that should tell us something. And he's there, and he stood up to read. He stands up to read. And for Jewish synagogue worship, it was common for a man to stand and read the scripture, and then he would sit down to teach. We see Jesus do this here. We see him do it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, before the Sermon on the Mount. In Mark chapter 4, verse 1, we see him do this before the parable of the sower. And in John 8, 2, before talking to the woman caught in adultery, sitting down to teach, reading of the scripture, and then sitting down to teach. And so they would, or he would sit down to teach, and synagogue, you might be wondering, what did synagogue worship consist of? What did it look like? Well, it usually would consist of a time where they would read prayers and uh, recite these prayers together. One of these often included the traditional Hebrew confession of faith that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You should write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Also, During this time, there would be what consisted of seven readings, and that would be followed up by a sermon. The sermon text or the the text that would be taught would often come from the prophets. Uh, It would be chosen most of the time by the person who would be delivering the text, delivering the, the teaching, although some believe that's not, that wasn't always the case. Sometimes they were handed what they would read. We see an example of this in Acts 13, 14 through 16. It says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Poseida. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so that's kind of what synagogue would look like. And then we go to verse 17. It says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And so Jesus takes the text, the text from Isaiah, and he turns, he goes to Isaiah 61.1 in the first part of 2 with a little bit of Isaiah 58.6 sprinkled in there. It's fitting as the Jewish rabbis viewed this text in Isaiah to be a text that was referring to the Messiah, the Messiah who was to come. And when we look at the words in the text that he reads, we can see how this would be fitting of him to read. The Spirit would be upon him. We know that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He would be anointed, the anointed one. The word Messiah literally means anointed one. He would bring freedom to the captives, freedom from sin and death. He would perform miracles of healing. And he would proclaim the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. If you're wondering more about the year of Jubilee, you can find that in Leviticus 25, 8 through 22. It goes into greater detail. But Warren Wearsby sums up the day of Jubilee like this. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year for the nation when the land was allowed to rest. And every 50th year after seven sabbaticals was set apart as the year of Jubilee. The main purpose of this special year was the balancing of the economic system Slaves were set free and returned to their families. Property that was sold reverted to the original owners, and all debts were canceled. The land lay fallow. Man and beast rested and rejoiced the Lord. So he would come to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the debts paid, everything paid. And then Jesus, he just stops reading right there, hands the scroll back and sits down. And while this is happening, the eyes of everybody is just fixated on him. They're glued to him. They're glued to what he's saying. They're listening intently. Fulfilled here. Or first, it's this idea of them staring at him, watching him intently, looking at him deeply. It carries this idea of extreme emotion. They're emotionally just glued to what Jesus is saying, what he's teaching. I think of it like this. You watch a movie and you're watching through this movie and then the big plot twist or something takes place and next thing you know you're your eyes are glued to the screen you're wondering what's going to happen next what's i i just i can't take my eyes off this i got to know what's going to happen next what what's going to happen to our main characters what's going to take place how is this all going to unfold and the people are watching with this intensity they're glued to what's going on they're gripped I love how Mark Moore describes all the potential emotions and feelings in the room at this time, saying, in the crowd are feelings of anticipation, pride, jealousy, friendship, and superiority. Watch closely as Jesus meets all of their expectations head on. And Jesus then begins to speak, and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word fulfilled here, it's a word that's in the perfect tense, meaning that this is an action that has been completed pastly. It's a completed past action. It was not in this exact moment that this was fulfilled, but this is one that had already been fulfilled, and they were seeing it. As they were looking at him, as they were listening, this has been fulfilled. They're seeing the fulfillment. 
that the Messiah has indeed come. He is there in their presence, in their midst. Then we go into verse 22. It says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you have heard, you did at, we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What happens next here is interesting. It says that people spoke well of him. The people were speaking well of him. The Greek for spoke well is actually a phrase that means bore witness or attest to. They bore witness to his speaking. They bore witness to what he was saying, or they, you know, they could attest to what it was he was saying. Then it says that they marveled, or some translations say they were amazed. They marveled or were amazed at what he was saying. Here's the thing about this word marvel or amazed. We often view it as a as a good thing, right? To say that somebody was amazed at what you were saying. We often think about it in a, a positive light, but this word here, amazed, could actually also be used and viewed as an, in a negative sense. A negative sense. They could hear that word amazed and like, oh, yeah, that's just amazing. Like there's a, a negative connotation to this as well. All this to say, it's very possible and likely that they're impressed with Jesus' ability to speak. They're impressed with the, the ability he has to, to read and speak and share these things that he's sharing. They're impressed. They are drawn to what it is he's saying, but it's very possible that they are not happy, and we'll see this as we go on. They are not happy with what he's saying. See, the problem was they weren't committed to him. I mean, they were not promising to follow him. They weren't promising to give their life to him. They weren't promising anything like that. They were just glued to what he was saying, his ability to speak. They were engaged. And as we see, they're hoping for more things. They're hoping for more marvelous works. They're hoping for more things to take place. And then you see the crowd eventually turn and they ask the question, is this not Joseph's son? They knew who he was. They recognize, isn't this Joseph's son, Joseph the carpenter? I never really thought about it until I read some people, you know, commentaries this week talking about, this is kind of a slap in the face, if you will, to Joseph. I mean, who is this guy? This guy is Joseph's son, isn't it? The carpenter, how does he have all this knowledge and insight and wisdom? Who is he to come and say all of this? Isn't he just Joseph's son? Kind of this backhanded compliment this phrase who is this guy see if I can turn the page there we go and so Jesus responds Jesus responds to him and he responds by bringing up an old proverb physician heal yourself in other words what this is saying is we won't believe a word you say 
till you can take care of what ails you. Who are you to say this to us? You're Joseph's son. You're just a carpenter's son. Who are you to come before us and say that you are this person? Who are you to say all of this? And what they're really asking is, is, is can you give us more proof? Do you need more proof? Jesus is saying, you're going to ask me to do more. You've heard what I've done in Capernaum. You've heard of the miracles, the things that have taken place. Can you do those things here? You're from here. Do these things here in your hometown, in our midst. People are waiting to see Jesus do the same thing. We need proof here. And Jesus refuses. Jesus refuses to do this. He refuses to do any miracles here in his hometown. And you might be wondering why. Why does he refuse to do any miracles here in his hometown? Well, in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, we get the answer. It says, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Their unbelief was keeping them from seeing any of these things. They weren't going to believe no matter what happened. Their unbelief was keeping them from, it was keeping it so where Jesus wouldn't do any miracles here. Very few laying on hands on the sick. And then he makes the comment, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. See, Jesus has been rejected by his own people. He was offering what was good and they did not believe. Their unbelief was strong. John 1.11 tells us he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John 4, 43 through 45, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. You know, his own people rejected him. His own people didn't want to have anything to do with what he had to say. And to prove these words that he says, he in this request for miracles, he looks to two examples. He looks to Elijah and Elisha. And what he says will be shocking to the people. So first, Jesus mentions Elijah. And he takes us back to 1 Kings chapter 17. There's a famine in the land, but Elijah is not sent to Israel to help a, a specific person from Israel with a situation. No, he's sent to a widow a Gentile widow in Seraphath. And God provided for this widow what she needed during this famine. And the second event, Jesus takes us to Second Kings 5. In this chapter, Elisha heals a Gentile leper from Syria who in turn says there is no God but the God of Israel. There is no other God like the God of Israel. He is God. How do these connect here with what Jesus is saying? Well, the Jews rejected Elijah, and he sent to a Gentile widow. The Jews rejected Elisha, and he sent to help a Gentile leper. Jesus is being rejected by his people, and so because he's being rejected by his people, he's going to take the gospel elsewhere. He's going to take the message. He's going to take the word elsewhere. And think about this again. We've been talking about so often in Luke that Luke's gospel is this idea of being for all people, Gentile and Jew alike. For all people, the gospel is for. And more times than any other gospel writer, Jesus will point to reaching out to the Gentiles here in the gospel of Luke. 
And this will set a pattern for what we see. He will minister to the sick, to the ostracized, to the outsiders, to the down and out, to the, per, or to the people that have been rejected. Luke 7, 22. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. This sets the, the tone for Jesus' ministry and the, what he will do. We'll see the same thing in Acts when the apostles go to the Jews first, and because of their rejection, they go to the Gentiles. And so how do you think all of this makes the crowd feel? They're probably pretty happy, don't you think? They're all like, oh, okay, cool. What a great message. Let's, let's call it a day. No. They react as you would expect. They're furious and they're filled with wrath. And this is the typical response when anybody says anything nice about the Gentiles or uses anything about the Gentiles. I actually read it this week, somebody describing it like this. The, the Jews' hate for Gentiles was often described in this way. The Gentiles were created to fuel the flames of hell itself. That was, their, that was their purpose. That's why they were created. And so what do they want to do? They want to kill Jesus. They drive him out of town and they take him up on the hill in which the town was built so they could toss him off the cliff. Things have escalated pretty quickly, haven't they? We're going to kill this man. Again, I love what Mark Moore says about the situation. He says, It would be interesting to know the choreography of the event that followed. Did they force Jesus up the hill, or did he go willingly? Was it a miracle that he passed through their midst, or did his righteousness keep them from touching him? If it was a miracle, did he just disappear, or did he overpower them, or did they become paralyzed in that moment? We don't know all the answers and details to this question, but we do know one thing. It was not yet Jesus' time. And when it comes Jesus' time to give up his life, he will do so on his own accord, not because he was forced to do it. John 7.30, so they were seeking him to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And this would even turn out, we would see this again, them trying to kill this man. We just read it there in John 8.59. They even get more violent, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself went out of the temple. You see, here's the thing. This is the stone that the builders rejected. This was the man that his people would reject him. A matter of fact, what's interesting is after what happens later in Mark, the text we read earlier in Mark, it appears that Jesus never steps foot back in Nazareth. Their unbelief. And so, as we read through the text... As I've been reading through it this week, I think one thing has stood out to me just over and over and over again, and it's a question. And it's a question that I've been asking myself, and it's a question that I think it's the that the text asks to us. And it's this, what do we want from Jesus? What is it that we want from Jesus? And I don't know if I'm even phrasing that question right or if that question makes sense but what is, what is it that we want from Jesus? What is it that we expect from Jesus? What is, who is the Jesus that we follow? Matter of fact, I guess I love how R.C. Sproul's asked the question this way. He says, if he, Jesus, preached at your church, would you marvel at the power and the grace of his speech? Would your soul be thrilled? 
Would you be hanging on every word that came out of his mouth? Or would you be filled with fury and want to destroy him? Would he be accepted or rejected by your congregation? Only you can answer that question. And that's the question, I think. What is it that we want out of Jesus? What is it that we expect from Jesus? What is it that we're expecting in our relationship with Jesus? And I think it's a really hard question to answer because if we were really serious with ourselves and if we really thought hard about it, more than we would care to admit, we don't really want the whole of Jesus, do we? Like, we don't want all of Jesus. We want the parts of Jesus that we're comfortable with, that we're okay with. We want gracious words, caring words, platitudes, and we want a Jesus that is the, the nice side of God, a gracious, wonderful, loving Jesus. We forget that Jesus is both grace and truth. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, we often so want the grace, but we don't want the truth. We want the grace part of Jesus. We don't want the truth part of Jesus. Or actually, I, I take that back, we do kind of want the truth part, but we don't want the truth part of Jesus in the way that we think we do. Uh, St. Augustine once said it this way, they love truth when it enlightens them, but hate truth when it accuses them. We're okay with truth when truth is a weapon to use against other people, but we don't want truth when it calls us to look at ourselves. We don't want truth when it accuses us. We don't want truth when it pulls out from us the sins in our life. We don't want truth when it causes us to have to look at ourselves and our flaws and our mistakes. We don't want truth when we need truth. And see, we, we know from Scripture that Christ is full of mercy and grace and compassion. We want that side of Jesus. I want to follow that Jesus. And sometimes we say, I don't want the Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I want the, the nice side of God, that Jesus. I don't want the, the Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want the, the good, the nice, the kind. I don't want the, the Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, Jesus. The, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I don't want that one. But you see, to worship, to follow Christ, that's to follow all of him. The grace, the mercy, the compassion, and the truth, the hard truths, the truths that we don't always want. Look at the letters to the churches in Revelation. What does he do when he writes to these churches? He calls out, here's the good things you're doing. But then he calls out the flaws. You know, I think of the church at Ephesus. You're doing all of these things. You're, you're hating the works of, you know, those who are, are spreading falsehood. You're, you're doing all these amazing things. You're helping the poor. You're helping the needy. You're doing all of these wonderful things. But I have all of this against you. You've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten why you're doing all of this in the first place. Repent or I'll come and snuff out your lights. 
You see, he both called out the good, he called out the bad. Why? Because at its core, sin is an assault on God. That's what it is. Our sin is an assault on God. And so what is it that I'm asking this morning? I'm asking, what is it that you want out of Jesus? Do you want a great speaker and a great teacher and that's it? Do you want a a faith where you just kind of pick and choose? You open the Gospels and you pick and choose the things you like and the things you don't. And the the things you like you'll follow, but the things you don't like you're going to just avoid. Do you pick the words of Christ that make you feel good and throw out all the words that convict and challenge because you don't want to face the truth? You want a Jesus that's always going to make you feel good about yourself or like I've mentioned and I've heard it said several times, Jesus is the nice side of God. In the Old Testament, God is wrathful and vengeful and in this moral monster. But Jesus in the New Testament, he's the nice side of God. He's the, he's the nice guy. That's the one that I want to follow. I don't want to follow the Old Testament. I want to follow the New Testament Jesus. I want, that's who I want. But here's the thing. I think a Savior that doesn't point out the areas that we need to fix that doesn't draw the sin out of us? Can we say that that Savior is really loving? Can we say a loving Savior? I mean, to me, what does Scripture tell us? He disciplines the ones he loves. You know, I think back to growing up and my parents, even not even just when I was growing up, even today, my parents know me well enough when they see me doing something or saying something or acting a certain way I shouldn't back then and even today, they'll call me out on it. And it's not because they hate me or anything like that. They call out those things they see in me that I need to work on because they love me. You know, my mom and dad, they're not afraid to say, hey, we've noticed your attitude lately. We've noticed that you've been really kind of grumpy or distant. Sometimes it's these hard things that I need to hear. You see, we need that hard truth. We need the grace. We need the mercy. We need the compassion. We need the truth. And if you are viewing God only by what you pick and choose of him to follow, then I would ask you the question, are you actually really following Christ? Are you following the real Christ? Are you following this made-up, fake version of Christ that you've picked and choosed and how you're going to follow, who you're going to follow? Now, I think this is why so many, I hear so many atheists say that I'm okay with a Jesus who was a good teacher and a good guy, but I'm not okay with a Jesus who tells me how I'm going to live my life, who's going to tell me I can or can't do this or that. And they say, I don't want to follow a Jesus who's going to tell me what to do. I don't want to follow a Jesus who's going to point out my sins. I don't want to follow a Jesus who's going to make me reflect on that stuff. I don't want a Jesus to follow like that. But I want you to think back to Isaiah 61.2. Jesus reads and he ends with, I'm, I'm here to proclaim the, the year of Jubilee, but what is left out is what comes in the next part of 61.2, in the day of vengeance of our God. You see, to all those people who would reject him, a day of vengeance would come. 
And guess what? The same thing is true of us today. There will be a day where we have to stand and give account for our belief or our unbelief. Today, for those who choose to reject them, a day is coming. John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And so that's the question. What is it that we're looking for out of Jesus? What is it that we want out of Jesus? I guess the better way, do we want all of Jesus or the parts of Jesus that make us feel good and happy and that never points out our flaws and never causes us to want to look deeper and change? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they come up here, maybe the thing is you've been asking yourself the same question. Maybe you've been struggling with that question. And I, I say I want to follow Jesus, but I've been struggling with the words that convict. I've been wrestling with who Jesus is and who this Jesus is that I want to follow. And maybe you've been asking yourself, who is this Jesus that you want to follow? And what parts of him have you been leaving out and trying to... And say, this is who I want to follow. Maybe you've been asking that question, and maybe you're here this morning, and you need to spend some time talking about that. I'd love to talk with you about who Jesus is and why we should follow him, all of him, every part of him. You see, Jesus is the only way. All of Jesus. Only name by which man must be saved. There is no other way. All of Jesus, every part of Jesus, every word he speaks, not just the parts we want, not just the parts that make us comfortable, all of him. Are we willing to follow him? Every single word, every single letter that he calls us to. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just need to spend some time praying. Maybe you've been doing that. Maybe you've been looking for those little pieces that, okay, this is what I want. And I want to avoid this other stuff. Maybe it's time to confront all that this morning. Maybe you just need to spend time in prayer. But whatever the case this morning, if you need to spend some time talking, if you need to spend some time in prayer, you'll have, you can talk to me now, we can talk after service. But if that's you this morning, if you need to spend some time talking or praying, please do so as we sing together.